Well, you're going to spend 90,000 hours of your life working. Isn't that an encouraging thought? You know, doesn't that sound great? Roughly one-third of your life will be spent doing a job and interacting with your coworkers. Take a deep breath. Everybody okay? That's a lot of your life that's spent working. Um, I'm sorry to be the one that to, to tell you that. You might be like, it'd be better just not to know. But that means your relationships with your coworkers are going to end up determining whether this one-third of your life is heaven or hell, whether it's an enjoyable experience or a bad experience. I think it was a few weeks ago Al said um, people don't leave jobs, they leave bosses. That might have been last week. I think that's so true. It's our relationships that determine whether or not our workplaces are good places. And over the last few weeks, that's what we've been talking about. Human beings are designed for relationships, relationships with God and with other people. And we're almost through our series on Ephesians 5 through 6. Next week will be our last message in the series. And I think that as people after 2020 and 2021, we need to be reschooled on how to be people of love, people who have relationships like Jesus did. Um, because we don't automatically become people of love just because we say we're Christians or just because we read our Bible every day or pray. You don't automatically just start loving people. We need to become people of love by cooperating with Jesus. It's an action between him and us as we model his behaviors and learn to act like he did as he's working inside of us at the same time. But before we talk about our relationships in the workplace, we have to correct some unhealthy thinking that we have about work, both in culture and in church. Like I've heard churches say things about work, and I'm like, that's not right. That leads to some unhealthy things. And then I've heard culture say some things about work that is not helpful um, and incorrect. Now, our culture celebrates vacations, right? We say things like TGIF, thank God it's Friday, right? Work week is over, yes. Um, we have songs about living for the weekend, but the Christian worldview believes that our work is a critical way that God is caring for human beings and renewing the world through us. The kingdom is coming, and we're either building it or we're reinforcing the kingdom of darkness. And you might be like, Alex, I'm a janitor. Literally, that's my title here at the Mainline Art Center. I'm a janitor. Um, they, they fancied up. They call you're a maintenance technician. I'm like, that's, a, that's whatever you call it, you know, like— um, people of love, though, see the smallest, simplest tasks as a divine assignment to broadcast God's love for the world. So they're not worried about the title or, like, how big or important it is. They see even the smallest, simplest tasks as a divine assignment to broadcast God's love to other people. Now, our culture defines us by our work. What question do we usually ask when we meet somebody for the first time? What do you do? Where do you work? What are you based on your work? Um, our culture defines us by our work and then has us wishing for an escape from our work. And the type of job someone has tempers how we think about them. If you're like, oh, they're a janitor, they're a doctor. Like it changes how you think about them because we are products of the Enlightenment. And we believe that jobs that require more education are more important than jobs that don't. That's some unhealthy thinking that can make us think of our work as not important or insignificant. In churches, I often hear um, unhelpful things like, God helps those who help themselves. Anybody ever hear that? I heard that a lot growing up, which usually means just do it yourself because God's not going to do anything. Like, it's all on you. 
And sometimes people would contrast that with a message of faith where they do nothing. They're like, it's all on God. I'm not going to send out any resumes. He's just going to give me a job. Or when I was single, I used to say, if I'm driving around in a convertible, which I didn't have, and a woman in a, a wedding dress falls into the passenger seat of the convertible, that's who I'm supposed to get married. Like, that's, that's taking the extreme where I do no work and God's supposed to do it all. Um, just as crazy as saying, I'm going to do it all and God's going to do nothing. See, God wants to work with us. He wants our work to be a human and divine collaboration. And perhaps sometimes we're so miserable in our day-to-day -day jobs because we're attempting to do it all ourselves instead of seeing it as a partnership with him. Um, God introduced the principle of Sabbath rest. The first thing he did was he rested from his labor, and he taught this as a human rhythm for them to follow his example to work and then rest, to work and then rest. Rest is when we get out of the way and let God work. When we refuse to rest, what we're saying is, we don't think God's going to do his part. You remember back in school when there were group projects? Anybody group projects? Uh, was, were you the one, raise your hand, don't raise your hand. Um, were you the one who was like, I know the other person in the project will do all the work so I don't have to do anything? Uh, or were you the one like me who was like, I'm going to get an A on this because I have to keep getting A's, and so I will do everybody else's work to make sure that we get an A on this project, and they're like, Oh, Alex is in our group? Good. We don't have to do anything. He's going to do it all. And I'd be frustrated and passive-aggressive, but I would get it done and everybody would get an A, even though I did all the work. Um, sometimes we act like God is the lazy student who we know won't do what he promised, so we refuse to rest. We work hard and work hard and work hard, and we refuse to rest because we think it all depends on us because we're not in a collaboration with God for our work. We think it's all on us. I'm really guilty of this. Like, I'm somebody who I will take it all on myself. And um, what I'm saying when I do that is I think God's a lazy God who's not going to be a part of working with me. People of love work hard and then rest, knowing God is still working when they aren't. In the church, I also quickly discovered a hierarchy of work importance with a very different metric than culture. As my family started attending church and we started uh, integrating into church culture, um, I started hearing pastors talk about this a lot. There was work, dirty, filthy, secular work, and then there was full-time Christian ministry, the highlight of all human life right there. Like, if you were a full-time minister, that's what it was all about. You might be a teacher or a scientist or a janitor, whatever, but there was nothing in comparison to being a preacher, a missionary, or an evangelist. This was the highest calling of a human. Um, of course, most of us didn't stop to think it was pastors and evangelists and missionaries telling us that they were the most important people. Um, that's not exactly the, the healthiest way to go about things. But this unhealthy view of work painted ordinary work as unspiritual and only work centered around the church as spiritual. This is fundamentally opposed to how the Bible talks about work and how historic Christianity viewed work. You know what would revolutionize our city, our nation, and our world? It's not more preaching or more Bible studies. I don't have any problems with those. Those are good things. Those aren't bad, but they aren't exactly turning the world upside down. What would turn the world upside down would be for you and I, students of Jesus, to begin to see the highest ministry calling of our lives, not to come and serve the church, but for 
our lives to be relation to our lives to be about the relationships we cultivate at work to begin to see full-time christian ministry not as something that pastors and ministry ministers and missionaries and evangelists do but something as teachers and janitors and carpenters and IT people and uh, you know administrative assistants and every type of work that people do to see as a spiritual calling, a divine assignment, to see our secular nine to five jobs as spiritual ministries. I think that's gonna change the world. Now, I'm not saying that, oh, if my work is a spiritual ministry that you start passing out Bibles, you know, like you're on the other side of your cubicle and you just keep tossing like Bibles over it. Like maybe they'll get the message. It's not saying like, oh, my boss is about to start a staff meeting and we're like, we haven't prayed yet, Barry. Let's stop for a minute and pray. Like, no, that's going to get you fired and it's not going to actually probably move anyone closer to Jesus. I'm saying we elevate the way we see our work as a divine assignment. I'm saying we see our coworkers not as random people on our team, but as people God has assembled for us to be the conduit of his love into their lives, to see our work as an extension of our worship. And this isn't some outlandish idea. The Hebrew word for work and the Hebrew word for worship is avodah. It's the same word. The word for work and the word for worship in the Old Testament is the exact same word. So if you go and look up where it says work, it's also the word for worship. And if you go and look up where it says the word worship, it's also the word for work. Their work was their worship, and their worship was their work. Ministers don't do spiritual work where the rest of us waste our time doing ordinary work. Like, I don't have my time preparing messages, uh, and that's my spiritual work. And then I come in here, and I clean classrooms and clean bathrooms, and I'm like, that's my secular work that's keeping me from the really important spiritual work. All my work is about loving people and serving others because that's my divine assignment. All our work is spiritual, work is worship, and this should fundamentally shift how we approach our jobs because we're not working for a salary, we're not working for a position, we're not working for glory, we're working as an act of worship. The first command in the Bible was to work. He told the humans to multiply the abundance of the garden through effort and concentration. And God wants to work with humans, to collaborate with them. He never wants to work unilaterally. If God can do something by himself, he's like, how can I get humans involved in this so that we can do it together? He never wants to work by himself. He always wants to work in relationship. God wants people of love to work with him, not for him. And working for God isn't something you do in churches. It's something you do every single day of the week. That can reshape our entire city and culture and world if we just start thinking about that. Spiritual work isn't stuff that's done centered around this uh, church, but it's something that's centered around everywhere I go. I'm taking the love of Jesus. I'm the conduit of God's love out into the world. Okay, so now that we have all that baseline, all that baseline information about work established, let's look at where the Apostle Paul takes us in his letter to the Ephesians about becoming people of love in our workplaces. In Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey 
the Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when they're watching you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good that you do, whether you are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and your master is watching from heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Uh, so first, let's just address the elephant in the room here as Paul was talking about slavery in these verses. And these verses were misused by religious slave owners in the South to excuse their barbaric treatment of slaves. But ancient first century slavery was never based on race. People were captured in wars and enslaved or robbed on the road and enslaved or sold into slavery to pay a debt. Um, slavery in the first century sometimes had term limits upon release, like you agreed I'm going to be a slave for this long to pay off a debt, and then I'm free. Um, they weren't always just manual labor. Some managed household finances, were well-educated, or were even tutors to the children. Some even became heirs to their master's household and wealth. And we have historic record of masters in the first century saying, hey, I've, this slave has become more like a son or a daughter to me. I'm leaving all my wealth to them. But we also have historical records of slaves being sexually exploited, forced into prostitution, or committing suicide due to the barbaric working conditions that they were found in. And slavery wasn't a small issue, uh, a small side issue in the first century. Slavery was everywhere. Uh, historians debate whether there were tens of millions up to hundreds of millions of slaves in ancient Rome. There, historians do estimate that out of the six million people living in Rome in the first century, two million were slaves. It's a huge segment of the population. Now, what Paul is arguing for here is that slavery won't be undone by a slave uprising. 73 years before Jesus, there was a slave who was training to be a gladiator to fight in the Colosseum. His name was Spartacus. He escaped with about 70 other gladiators. They sent out a Roman legion to capture him. Him and his fellow gladiators killed that legion. Then they went and freed more slaves. Over the next few years, they gathered 120,000 men, women, and children, all former slaves. Um, it's pretty much the story of Gladiator, but just set at an earlier time in history. And they went about capturing Roman towns and harassing Roman garrisons until finally Rome had had enough, and they sent out three massive forces of soldiers to surround them and killed them. And then they crucified 6,000 of them along the major highway in Italy. Um, just to be like other slaves, hey, you want to try this? This is what's going to happen to you. And then Rome cracked down on slaves, making their lives even worse, and the political fallout of the revolt led the Roman Republic to morph into the Roman Empire. All that to be said, opposing violence with violence didn't make anyone's life better. And so what Paul's not saying is, slaves, you need to rise up, kill your masters, declare freedom. He's suggesting something very different. Students of Jesus, people of love, don't change the status quo through force. They undo darkness with love, not with hate. The Christian vision for change is slower, but we don't force culture to change. Um, we believe that by introducing people to our king, that it changes people one at a time. What Paul is suggesting is that we live in such a way that it undermines the violence and the abuse of the system that we're in. By serving well, the one person in front of them, we change them, and one small change shifts the trajectory of history. You never know how your one act 
of living and loving like Jesus has changed someone that you've touched or come across and how that shifted the entire course of history. Now, I realize that in this passage, we're crossing time and culture here to compare this passage to our modern workplaces, but I think there are some principles that apply to us and that are useful. You see that Paul's first instruction here in verse 6 is to see our work as work for Jesus the Christ. He uses the word Christ here, which is our Messiah King, to stress that the way we work is building our kingdom. See, our work isn't about building our kingdom. Like, got to build that 401k. Got to build that big investment. And I'm like, I got to get ready for my kingdom when I retire so it's all set up. Our work is about building his kingdom. The way we work is changing our small corner of the world. People of love always keep the perspective that the smallest thing that they are doing right now is reshaping the world to come. What you do and how you do it and how you treat people matters. And sometimes I'm here and I'm doing a pointless, stupid task that I'm going to have to do again and again 700 more times that week. And I think, what does it matter if I do it this time? It doesn't matter. But somehow, the Christian belief is that the way we work and that the belief that we are working for our coming king makes our small task important and not meaningless. The mindless, stupid, pointless tasks of your job are to be done as an act of worship to Jesus. Uh, remember that movie, Office Space? And the boss was always like, where's my TPS report? Get my TPS report. Um, that TPS report isn't for your demanding and demeaning boss. It's for your king, your king who laid down his life for you, your king who rescued you out of darkness to live in his life. People of love reinforce what they love about their work. Now, the natural thing to do, right, is to talk about what we hate about our work, and there's always something to hate. Like, there's always going to be something that's wrong. That's human nature. Uh, I really feel like in Philadelphia, Philadelphians are great at discovering what's wrong with something. Like, join a local Philadelphian Facebook group, and they'll be like, these roads are too flat. Now they're too bumpy. Now they're too straight. Now they're too curvy. Like, no one's ever happy, right? There's always something to complain about. The human nature of people is to complain, but the human nature of people love as students of Jesus have a new nature. It's supernatural to talk about right the most punk rock rebel thing you can do is to praise instead of complain if you want to be countercultural, if you want to be a rebel celebrate instead of being critical because it's natural it's easy to be critical celebrating is supernatural now this doesn't mean that you don't have conflict to resolve issues Dr. Henry Cloud says one of the biggest issues in the modern workplace is avoiding healthy confrontation that needs to happen Here's what Henry Cloud says. To get a job done, we have to solve the problems and face issues. To get along well, we have to work out relational issues with each other through facing things as well. So the entire arena of work requires good confrontation skills to work well. Confront well, and you will work better also. The best teams and the best work cultures are those that confront issues and each other in a healthy way. Paul then continues in verse 7 that our work that is unseen should be just as good as our work that is seen. 
Now, I will tell you right now, when there is a gallery show downstairs and they're like, we're going to have 400 people in, the board is going to be in, these bathrooms better be spotless, Alex, I put in a little bit of extra effort because I know people are going to see it and they're going to complain about it if it's not right, right? But what verse 7 says is, we shouldn't just be extra careful when we know people are watching and kick back and not work as hard when no one will notice or no one will know. Um, what Paul is saying is that we shouldn't just work for human applause. We should work for Jesus, who's always watching. It reveals many times that we see work as a way to amass human praise, not as a way to praise our Heavenly Father by working well in his name. Paul borrows from Jesus for his next instruction. He says, work as if everything that people don't see will be rewarded by a loving and generous God. Uh, that's riffing off of Jesus in Matthew 6, 4, where Jesus says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Many times I don't believe that. Like, I only think that people notice that'll get rewarded. And I think sometimes we miss out because we don't work hard when no one's watching. Because really we're much more people pleasers than we are God pleasers. In verse 9, Paul shifts the table and begins to talk to masters, to bosses. He says, you should act in the same way as your slaves. Now, that was a controversial statement in the first century. He's like, hey, you should act just like your slaves. They should be serving their employees as if they were serving God because they are. A good boss empowers people to work well by making it a divine mission to meet their needs, not just get results from them. Paul describes the leadership style of people of love as not making threats, not having favorites, but by practicing self-sacrificial service and love. Now, it's easy for our workplaces to turn into gossip mills where we spend most of our days uh, talking and complaining about other people and things. But our words follow our emotions, which follow our thoughts, which follow our behavior. If you want to change what you're saying, you need to change what you're feeling. If you're going to change what you're feeling, you need to change what you're doing. People of love thing, find things to celebrate, people to praise, and see their work as a divine assignment from God. That doesn't mean they can't find another job better suited to their skills. It just means that work is never just a paycheck. They always are wondering and watching for what God's up to as he collaborates with them to love people in the workplace. Work is about cultivating relationships with people to express God's love to them through us. God loves the world, but he loves the world through students of Jesus who are learning to live and love like he did. So when people of love look for work, they're never asking, what job pays the most? I mean, that's an important question to ask, but it's not the critical question. They are asking, where can I best broadcast the love of Jesus to people? Now, I want to end this message with a quote from Pete Cazzaro, the author of Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And he says this, every student of Jesus should think of, them as a full, think of themselves as a full-time Christian minister no matter what work you do. And he says, these are the four things that you should think about as you live out full-time Christian ministry no matter what your job is. Number one, I am called to create and shape in the midst of chaos. You're, you're designed to create something, to do work, to make things better. Number two, you are called to build a flourishing community wherever I am. How can I build healthy relationships with other people? Number three, you're called to bring light where darkness exists. How can I make dark places, dark relationships, how can I bring light to those? And number four, 
I am going to, I am called to enjoy a rhythm of work and Sabbath, doing what I can do, trusting God for what I can't do, doing what I can do, trusting God for what I can't do. Eugene Peterson, in his book on pastoring, said that the role of a pastor is to love people and to exemplify every day a livable Christianity, what it looks like to live like Jesus every day. He said that's the high calling of a pastor. And I want to suggest to you that's not just the high calling of a pastor, that's the high calling for every one of us every single day, no matter what our job is, no matter where it is, whether we're, we're retired or whether we're still on the early end of those 90,000 hours of working. Our high calling, our great commission, our divine assignment is to love people and to exemplify a livable Christianity. Let's get to work. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this challenge to my own heart. God, forgive me for so often doing a really good job when people are watching. And the things on the back end that people aren't going to see, I'm just like, eh, I got, I got better things to do, you know. Um, Lord, help me to care about the small things as much as the big things. Help me not just to have this big picture vision, but also worry about the details. And God, I pray that you will help all of us to see our work not as just some secular job that gets in the way of the important things of life, but to see it as a divine assignment. You've brought people around us so that we can cultivate relationships and share your love with them. You've called us to love people and exemplify a livable Christianity. Help us to do that. Help these people to see themselves as commissioned by you for this divine and holy calling. Yes, there are pastors and missionaries and evangelists, but their calling is no higher than our calling to go into the workplace tomorrow and love people well. Amen.